Welcome back to the Grief Observed podcast. I am your host, Brad Morell. And again, I want to remind you, if you listen from the Podbean app and only want to listen to certain episodes that may apply to you, just click on the Tags dropdown, and you can kind of uh, select themes that may apply, like if you've lost a spouse or a daughter or uh, anything like that, you can uh, just kind of listen to the episodes that apply to you. Uh, also, if you want to be on the podcast, feel free to contact me at griefobservepodcast at gmail.com or find me on Facebook, and it's simply Grief Observed Podcast on there. So um, my guest today is Lindy, and she is a hospice nurse and end-of-life doula, and she's also wanting to speak today about uh, the loss of her late husband. So Lindy, welcome to the show. I appreciate you being here with me. I appreciate you having me, Brad. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. Why don't you first open up and just kind of tell everybody who you are? Well, like you said, I'm a, I'm a uh, hospice nurse, and actually nursing was a second career for me. I have a background in performing arts. I was a dance instructor and dancer um, for many years, um, and then I decided to go to nursing school um, when I was in my 30s, and so that kind of shifted gears there, and um I did um, a couple other things before I actually got into, into hospice nursing a little bit later in my career, but I've been a hospice nurse for almost 15 years now and um, also worked in palliative care, which is, you know, not exactly the same thing, but they're obviously they're related to each other. Um, and about, what's it now, three, three years ago, yeah, I became a, um, was called a uh, board certified nurse coach. So I went through a coaching program that's designed for nurses and um, I don't just coach nurses, I coach, you know, anybody who who is struggling with grief, um, particularly people who want to move forward. That's my focus is really recovery and people who may be feeling stuck and they want to, they might want to move forward in their life after they've, they've had some kind of a loss or, or losses. Um, and so I do one-to-one -one, uh, coaching and group coaching. Um, but then I was also as an end of life doula, I offer um, that, that support, mainly grief support um, to people sort of before, during and after um, whether it's for the person who's ill and, and dying and, and or their family members. And uh, help with um, life care planning documents and things like that if they don't have those things in place, like advanced directives and so forth. Um, and then I also teach for that organization, um, teaching a grief, a 15 week grief course that I created a couple of years ago. And I uh, co teach a what's called a pet doula course. So we work with people um, trying to train them so that they can support others with their, their pets and their pet care and when their pets get ill and when their pets die and so forth. Um, so that's, um, I mean, that's basically, that's basically what I do. Um, and my background as far as um, kind of how I came into all this was the first really big loss I suffered when I was in college. I was 19 when my father died very suddenly. Hmm. I mean, he, he had some health issues, but I mean, his death was pretty unexpected. Um, and that was a huge, um, a huge thing for me and a big change in my life kind of changed direction for me in, in some ways and changed our whole you know, family's financial picture and so forth. Um, I mean, my parents both worked, but my mother then had to kind of take that over. And I was still in school and my brother had, he was living on his own, but um, it was, it was, you know, it was a big deal. And the, the interesting thing about that was that at the time, I felt like there cer certainly back then there wasn't a lot of support for grief. Um, you know, it was one of those things like family I grew up in was kind of like, well, you know, we support each other, but you just kind of, you know, kind of suck it up and soldier on and get back to your life. And and that's pretty much what I did. And so I didn't deal with the grief for many years, you know, didn't realize that I didn't, de didn't deal with it, but just decisions that I made in my life and behaviors and different things that I was doing was very, um, looking back on it now, was very propelled by the fact that I had this unresolved grief that I was not, you know, had not dealt with until well, actually a couple of decades later so. Um, so that that was one of the things that really kind of put me in this direction and even got me interested in hospice care. Um, the family I grew up in was very open about death, which was kind of kind of cool because that was not something that, as you know, that's not real common either. But my mother um, particularly would go to wakes of, you know, uh, people in the in our community and our church and family members and so forth. And at a fairly young age, I started going with her because I was curious about it. So I've always been comfortable in that arena. And um, my mother and I both worked in, in healthcare, so. Um, it's been something that's been, um, like I said, kind of a part of my life for, for quite a long time. Um, <clears throat> and I, I kind of felt like I didn't want, I don't want other people to struggle the way I had, you know, and kind of get stuck and, and not, and not have those resources and so forth. So when I 
um, decided to become a coach, that was, I just kept, I kept, kept being pulled in that direction of, of offering grief support. And not that you necessarily have to have a, a niche, as they say, right away, but um, that was just, just calling my name. So um, I started, you know, researching and I took a couple of courses and to learn more yeah, that I, as much as I could about grief. And, and that's sort of where I came from here. And, and prior to that, I guess it was about five, a little over five years ago, my late husband took his own life. Mm. Um, and coming into that, there was a lot of things going on. He struggled with health issues. He had, he couldn't work because of that. And which was a really big thing for him. Um, because he had his own business as a carpenter and he was very, very, very talented and very good at him and doing it for a long time. And, um, you know, we were struggling in our relationship because of those pressures, um, which we never expected would happen because we actually had been high school sweethearts and kind of gone our separate ways and got back together years later and got married. So it was kind of like a nice, you know, nice love story. And we just kind of really felt like we could manage anything. And then um, there's a lot of pressures, financial pressures. And like I said, with, with his um, state of mind and his health and everything. Um, and it, unfortunately, he just, you know, got to a point where he did not. I mean, he was dealing with chronic pain. I mean, he was had for a couple, several decades, actually, was um, due to an accident he had when he was younger. And um, yeah, so and that that became overwhelming for him. And so that really kind of changed the direction of things for me as well. So about a year, no, two years after that happened, um, I just, that's when I decided to become a coach. And so that also pull me in that direction because as far as like suicide support, I mean, it's not that there's not, it's not out there and there's organizations and so forth, but it's really hard to get kind of direct support. It's hard to find a therapist who specializes in that or a counselor or a coach, um, even support groups, you know, working as a nurse, I work nights and so forth. There was a support group in the area, but it only met they had two different groups that met once a month kind of alternately, but both days didn't work for my schedule um and so it yeah it just and i live in an area where there's resources i mean the other areas which are kind of more rural and so forth don't even have the resources we have here so i just really felt um like it was something i wanted to concentrate my 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 efforts on going forward um and like i said i've, I've got interested in um being an end-of-life doula because a colleague of mine had mentioned to me she was a birth doula and she said you know well have you ever heard of death duels and i'm like no, makes sense, but never heard of them. So again, I started looking into that and decided to uh, uh, go through that training um, so that I could offer those services as well. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think people are more familiar with you know birthing doulas, but not mm -hmm. end of life doulas. Um, and, and we'll circle back there because I've got some questions, or at least want you to open that up to those that are unfamiliar sure. with it. Um, but first, uh, if you would like, let's, let's just talk about more of the losses that you've seen. I, I know you said your father passed away unexpectedly when you were 19. Um, did you have any other major losses between him and your husband? Uh, yeah, my mom, uh, my mom died in 2008. Um, and she, it was a di much different trajectory with her because she had dementia. So hers was sort of a more protracted, you know, illness. Although she died a lot sooner than we expected. My grandmother also had Alzheimer's and, and she lived for about 12 years with that in long-term care. And so my brother and I kind of geared up feeling, thinking that this is what we were going to go through with my mother. And um, it was maybe three years after she was diagnosed um, mm. that she that she had died. So, it, I mean, she was declining. So we definitely knew it was coming. She was under hospice care. But the whole, it, it just um, happened much more quickly than we expected. So, so that was a, a pretty pretty big loss for me and that was about was that 2008 yeah so that, that's been a while now too so 15 years ago hmm. more than 15 years ago. um so those, yeah those are that was the probably the biggest loss in between and then um prior a couple few years before my um late husband died i had a good friend from high school um who i had not been in touch with for a while and i found out that he had died also which was um just really affected me a lot as well because i kind of felt um you know, felt felt bad that I felt guilty that we had fallen out of touch. And when I heard that he was struggling with some things, I, I again felt like, gosh, I should have, you know, I should have been there for him. I didn't even know any of this was going on. So that and then my my late husband knew him as well. And so that was something that we, um, you know, talked about quite a bit. And then, um, you know, and then when he died, and and the thing with with his suicide was that, I mean, a lot of people are kind of blindsided by a suicide. And sometimes it's an accidental thing, like an overdose or something, or where somebody seems to be doing okay, even if they've had struggles and so forth. 
And I knew, you know, like I knew that he was really struggling. He um, had been talking about it for a while, about not being happy with being in the world and so forth. And he was in counseling. You know, we found him a, a counselor to go to, but I don't think he was completely open with the counselor about what was going on with him. Um, and so I think that, like I said, I, I was aware that he was thinking about it. He threatened a few times and I, I redirected him and kept telling him, you got to talk to your, your therapist about this. And and I was seeing, I was seeing a therapist at the same time, not the same one, but um, so we were really trying to, um, you know, deal with the issues. And um, like I said, I just, I, I know he was really hopeless about where he was at with his life. And he was envisioning, he was in his fifties, you know, envisioning how many more years am I going to live this way? Is it going to be a couple more decades of being in, you know, pain basically 24 seven. Yeah. He was on medication and so forth, but he never really had any relief. He couldn't work. It was just, it was not a good situation. So, um, so I think the biggest thing for me was that I was actually surprised that he actually did it, but I wasn't surprised that it happened. And I actually understood you know, I mean, as devastated as I was, I understood why why he did that. So I know that's a little bit different than what a lot of other people experience with the suicide. Like I said, where they kind of get kind of get blindsided. But I feel like my experience kind of gives me a, a different perspective that might be helpful to some people who, you know, were in the same situation where they kind of felt maybe it was coming and it was going to happen and they tried to stop it and they couldn't. And I mean, I was felt guilty about that for a long time mm. that I should have been able to do something you know being a being a nurse and having background in in, in psych nursing and hospice and so forth i i kind of felt like there should have been something i should have been able to do and i wasn't able to so yeah i think we often use those guilt words you know the shoulda woulda couldas and i've, I've tried to mm -hmm. cut most of those out in my life but uh i think when when dealing with a suicide it is so so common for the uh people left behind to use those type of words, um, what what would you say to encourage someone who's maybe feeling some of those guilt words? You know that I should have known, or I, I I wish you know I could have stopped this, or would have done something different, or what what would you say to those to encourage them? Well, some of it's more like on an intellectual level, like what we kind of know in our minds, and sometimes that doesn't isn't always real helpful, but at the same time, it can be, um, uh, you know, having worked in, in psychiatric nursing for a number of years, I had already kind of known this, but realized it even more at the time that lots of times, no matter what you do or what people who are trying to help, like even professionals are trying to help people. Sometimes when they've made that decision, um, they've made that decision for their own reasons. And there really is nothing that you can do. To, to stop it as hard as you might try. Um, and that and that is not to say that you can kind of prevent suicides because we, we prevent them all the time. So um, I don't want to say to people, oh, there's no hope. If someone decides they want to commit suicide, they're going to do it no matter what. I mean, that that's not really the case. But I do think that there does come a point sometimes with, with some people where that is the situation. And, um, and there's really like, there's nothing. I mean, we can question ourselves even when somebody dies more naturally, like someone goes to the hospital and has a sudden illness and dies. I mean, people do that to themselves too. Like I shouldn't know about this, or I sh we should have gone to this doctor and said this one, or I should have gone to the hospital sooner. Or maybe they, you know, that they would have survived. Or um, I think it's, it's human nature that we, we do that to ourselves. But like you said, with a suicide, it's particularly difficult because we just kind of feel like we should have been able to intervene. And especially with somebody that close, like if it's a, a, a spouse or a partner or a sibling, a, a close friend, a parent, you know, a child, you, you kind of feel like, oh, I should have, I, you know, I know this person really well. We have, you know, and I, I should have known, I should know this was coming or I should have been able to think of, of some way to, to stop it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's easy to get caught up in that, in that guilt and then not really care for yourself. And so I think that's one of the things I want to sort of encourage people that, um, you know, it, it, basically more than likely you've done everything that you could do and so you know once you are, start to process through that grief and and walk through it and and start to be you know begin to heal you really do have to take care of yourself because there's just like with any other kind of death there's nothing that you can do to go back and change it so and honestly like i said more than likely there probably was nothing you could have done to prevent it you may have even tried to prevent it like i did a few times and and just was not successful so yeah, I, I actually am encouraged when people come into my office and actually speak about thoughts of suicide um, in the fact that they're talking about it. And I feel like yep. 
95% of the people who are uh, ready or are wanting that in their life, um, they don't talk about it. There, there's, you know, yeah. there's signs, there's certain things that I think mm -hmm. we could look for, um, but they usually will not speak of it. Like you said, they're, they're fairly committed in their mind at, at what they're going to do. Yeah. And my, my husband had even, um, you know, started doing some things like he was looking into um, other kinds of work to do, you know, because he used to build guitars years ago. He was very talented at that as well. And so he had made a contact locally with somebody um, who had who did that and was going to possibly, you know, uh, train with him and work work there part time. And that was so, you know, I was thinking, oh, well, he's sort of, you know, I know he's been feeling this way, really depressed and 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 discouraged about his situation but now it seems like he's really kind of redirecting him and he bought a couple books about it and you know like to kind of prepare for this and so in that way yeah it did kind of surprise me because i i really thought you know he was taking some steps even though like i said he had, you know he had talked about it and it, it was funny because you know we talk very op again very openly about that stuff and some people don't but we watch something on television or whatever or something in the news and he would just kind of shake his head and say i don't know you know, I don't know how much longer I'm going to stay in this world the way things are going. But, but people say that kind of stuff, you know, a lot, you know, especially when sure, they're discouraged sure. about the, the state of the world. So um, we had a lot of discussions about it. Um, but I guess really I, I didn't think it was going to come come to what it came to. Um, and, uh, and you know, it was one of these things, like I said, like he really only talked to me about it when he was willing to talk about it. Like I knew he wasn't even talking to his therapist about it. And part of that was because he knew from my work in, in psych nursing and so forth that if he, um, you know, went to the hospital and talked about, you know, that he might be suicidal, they would um, admit him and they might even, you know, commit him like short term commitment and so forth. And so he basically, you know, kind of made me swear I wasn't going to tell anybody. He said, you know, I'm dealing with it. And he said he was talking to this counselor about it. But again, like in hindsight, I don't really think he was. So you're right. So it's that people don't really, when when they have that decision made, they they don't talk about it. Like you said, it is encouraging if they're talking about it. If they if they go to the hospital or wherever to try to get help, that actually is a really encouraging thing because at least they you feel like they have a chance. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing too that I found out after that when I was doing some reading was that um, the suicide risk, even if you're somebody like myself who's not ever really felt suicidal. Um, when you lose a loved one through suicide, your suicide risk um, actually increases dramatically, especially in those first few weeks and months that you're dealing with that loss, um, because people often think um, this is too overwhelming and maybe and maybe they had the right idea. Maybe I should do the same thing. And um, I, I, that, that was a kind of a, a statistic or a phenomenon that, that kind of surprised me. Um, and it really spurred me on to you know to stay with my counselor for for months, for many months after that happened. So that I could, um, yeah, so that, that I wouldn't get into that, that uh, situation. Because I thought, well, I could, I could see that. I could see that happening, you know, to, to myself or to anybody else. So that's another thing, too. Um, not that it's, there's anything wrong with you if you're having those feelings. Because it's almost kind of natural to feel that way after you've had a loss like that. But just really um, seek out help however you can. Because it's, you know, it's, it's not, yeah, not, not a good place to be in. No, no. And I think a lot of people uh, may have felt that way in the past, but they just never speak of it. So I, I think if we really saw the true numbers of people who have had thoughts of ending their own life, um, I think it would be astounding, the, the numbers. Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, But I, on the flip side of that, I think it would actually be helpful for others to see that Okay, I'm not crazy. I've not, you know, why am I having these thoughts? Well, wow, all these other people have had these thoughts and they're still living. So, you know, I think it would be encouraging for people to know that they're not alone in in some of yeah. those thoughts. But uh and and yeah, I that's think that's part part why I brought that up too, because the, I want people to know that it is actually kind of normal to feel that way for I mean if after the loss of any any, any kind of significant loss in your life, um, that's normal to feel that way. But it's particularly if you lose somebody to suicide, it, it doesn't, like you said, doesn't mean you're crazy. It doesn't mean that you're actually going to go ahead and do that. Um, but it, it's, it's important to talk about it. Yeah. And if, if there's anyone listening that may have those thoughts uh, as we speak, you know, I always encourage them 
to uh, especially use the new 988, right? You can text or call if you have any of those feelings. And uh, of course, local ER, 911, uh, any mental health facility, you know, just I just I, I think people need to know their options and know that uh, mm-hmm. they they are loved in this life. You know, that's mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons um, that that people do feel like end of life is is good is they're wanting something to to stop in their life and they don't know how to stop it. Just like your husband was speaking, you know, about health issues. That that was probably one of the things that he wanted to stop, and he just didn't know mm-hmm. any other way around it. So, you know, I think um, suicide is often um, confused for those that don't understand the reasoning, you know, behind somebody's mm-hmm. decisions. And and certainly, I'm not stating that's a good option. I'm just stating that there's usually something else. You know, people don't want to just die for no reason. Right. Correct. Right. And I, and I felt fortunate in that, like I said, that I knew I I was pretty certain of what, you know, his reasons were. So I, I even though I wish I could, it, didn't, it hadn't happened. I wish I could have changed it. I uh, wish he was still here. Um, I understood, you know, whereas I know sometimes that's that's part of the thing that what makes the grief more complicated for people is they don't understand, you know, why somebody did that. Yeah, and so I, I understood what drove him. Again, I w- I wish it hadn't, but at the same time, I, I kind of got it. I was like, well, okay. I mean, I know how I I live with him, you know, day in and day out. I I know how he struggled and he suffered, and and like you said, I mean, he did. He went to doctors and he was on medication and he did surgery and he did you know all the things, and he still you know there was no solution to the problem. How long were you married? You know, Lindy. We were married for. Almost nine years, but we okay. we were together. Um, I mean, we knew each other for forty years. Like wow. I said, we did it in high school, and we were good friends, and we stayed in touch, you know, pretty much on and off for for you know all through the years. And then um, a couple of years, be- actually quite a few years before we got married, we got had gotten back in touch, and we just you know we're just friends. We just talked periodically because we lived in different states. Um, and then the long-term relationship he was in and the marriage that I was in, both of them kind of started going south at the same time, not really because of anything either one of us did. And so we sort of haven't talked about like, maybe we messed up years ago and we really should have not split up and we let's, let's, let's talk about this. And so we decided to, you know, start seeing each other again and we got married. So, which was, you know, we were both obviously very happy about. So, yeah, I know a, a tragic death such as a suicide can kind of, uh, leave a long-term relationship um i don't know it, differently i i guess I, I don't even know uh the word that i'm trying to to use here but i'm curious if there's just one really fond memory of your marriage that that kind of helps you to get past um the the ending actually there's a lot um we we um we always had a lot of fun together and we, we, we laughed, you know, we laughed a lot, even, even in these last few months, you know, like there were times when we still, you know, were able to do that. So I have many fond memories of just the fun that we had together. We would just love to spend time together. Um, we were very compatible. Um, and we, like I said, we had a long history. So we used to like to reminisce about things from, you know, back in the day and when we were kids and where we were from and so forth. So I, I actually have a lot of those memories and I did, I did. I'm glad you mentioned that because I did lean on those pretty heavily, especially in the in the the weeks, you know, like after it, first first few weeks after it happened. Um, and it was it's interesting too because I remember him saying at one point um, when he said, "If anything ever does happen to me, or if I ever do anything to myself, you know, um, I I don't I don't think it would be a big deal." And I was kind of like, "Excuse me, like what do you mean?" He goes, "Well, I don't, you know, people aren't even going to really notice." Mm-hmm. So we had a big discussion about that, but I remember saying that to a close friend of ours after he died. Um, and she, she was just like, how could he have, I, I don't understand. And I said, well, he's thought that no one was going to really notice he was gone. She was like, oh my God, how could he have thought that? I'm like, well, that's the state of mind people get into when they're that um, discouraged and hopeless and and just sort of at the end of their rope, that's really how they feel. Like I could just check out and people will be the better for it, not the worst. You know, they'll get over it. You know, like that and that's really the way a lot of people feel. Um, you know, when they because I like I said, working in psychiatric nursing for for quite a few years. I mean I had those discussions with people who came in who were suicidal and that's you know a lot of things that they said was I just kind of felt like 
if I wasn't here, it would actually be better for people, you know, and, mm-hmm. and maybe this was the, 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 the right solution, you know, not thinking how much pain it was actually going to cause, not, you know, not the opposite. So, yeah, one of my best friends passed away about 12 years ago. And for, I would say, probably the first seven or eight years, all I focused on was how he passed. And and he was, you know, 38, mm-hmm. young. And, and those thoughts really trumped the the aspects the good aspects of his life and it took me a long mm-hmm. time to kind of start making that turn into where I could actually think more about the positive things that we did together his life versus mm-hmm. his death and i think that's one of the main things and one of the most important things that we can do is not to forget who a person was in life you know they had a story and although their their life has ended, their story still remains. Right, and we're and we're the ones that tell our story. I was just listening to another um, podcast recently, um, uh, and they were talking about that, like it's how it's so important to tell those stories, particularly as we get older. And if you come from a smaller family, and you know, you could end up being kind of like the last one standing. You know, your parents die, and maybe your sibling or siblings die, and and here you are, and you're really the only person who has those stories of that immediate family of like when you were growing up and different things that, you know what I mean? Like people, other people, extended cousins and aunts and uncles and so forth know some things, but I mean, that family unit's really the only ones who know particular things and have particular memories. And you could be the last one with those memories. And so it's really important, like you said, to talk about those stories and those people. Um, Cause then, you know, after you're gone, then people can hopefully talk, talk about your story and their stories too, because you, you shared those with them. So. I mean, that's how, like you said, that's how we honor people. That's how we kind of keep them alive um, for ourselves. And, and and like you said, not not think so much about how they die, but more about how they live. Because I did that with my dad for a long time. I, I was very focused for many years on how it all happened and how what happened that day and how it all unfolded and so forth. Um, and it took me a long time, like like with yourself, to get back to just thinking about, you know, the good memories and the, and the things and who he was and how he lived and um you know that's one of the things i like about social media there's things about it i don't like but when you mention people like there's lots of older friends and stuff like when it was just my dad's birthday a couple of days ago and I, I posted something about it um obviously he's been gone for a very long time but there's people who still knew him from when we were young and people always say such nice things oh he's such a kind man oh he was so nice oh he was great did you know i remember when he did this and i remember you know and so though that kind of stuff is just um it's important and it helps those those are the things that help us heal yeah too our own stories about people, plus hearing what other people have. Because I always say to people, if you don't know what to say to somebody, you go to a wake or a funeral or something, or somebody struggled with grief. If you know that person um, that died, um, if you have any, if, if you were a coworker or you were a friend from years ago or whatever, you know, t- talk about them. Talk about them. That's the thing. People want the people who've, who've lost somebody want to talk about those people. But the people around them are kind of like tiptoeing around like, oh, I don't want to upset them. So we don't want to I don't want to mention their name or talk about the person. And it's really important to do that, like to say their name and to say, you know, uh, or to talk about stories you have about them or to ask them. Um, that's why I always always do with patients, you know, like if they were talking about um, somebody who died and I'd say, oh, well, tell me about them, you know, or they have pictures and I look at their pictures and say, oh, who's that or what, you know. And it's really, it's really important for people to talk, talk about those people, even if it's many years later. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sitting there thinking about the, uh, you know, I, I guess I can't even think of the name of them. I guess like the record books, whenever people are going through a funeral line and they're signing their name, mm-hmm. yep. I think it would be neat if, um, I don't know, somebody took just, uh, I don't know, maybe a page and, and wrote in there like a, or maybe just a couple of sentences like, Hey, here's a great memory of me and this person. And, and what, what a uh, treasure that would be to the family as opposed Very to just so. saying, yeah, it, you know, as opposed to, I guess a roll roll call, right. You know, it's like, okay, I appreciate you coming. But, um, but if we did take that time to say, Hey, this is my best memory with that person. Wow. That would just be, Awesome. Yeah, and I actually had a friend who did that. Um, a woman that I had known for many years, and my mom, my mom actually was a friend of hers and a friend of the family grew up with, and so forth. And um, 
she had been going through some things this is many years ago. She's gone now too, but um, she'd been going through some things and came across a card that my mom had sent to her. And, you know, my mother always wrote nice little notes in her cards and so forth. Um, and that's the other thing too. If if you have handwritten things and we all do so many things electronically now, but if you write somebody a note or a card, or whatever, it's so important to save those things. Cause really looking back on, it, I know with my dad's stuff and the stuff my mother wrote and so forth and my, my late husband wrote, um, you know, the, just to see their handwriting sometimes is, is very, you know, comforting. And um, she sent me the card and she said, I came across this card that your mom sent me and, and I thought you might like to have it. And um, she was just talking about in the card, she was talking about a memory that something we had all done together um, and how nice that day was and so forth. And that I still have that card. I mean, I, and she, I treasured that plus the note that she wrote along with it, because like I said, now she's gone too. Mm. Um, and it was just, even like you said, little things like that, writing a little note in the, in the book at the, at the funeral or, um, you know, or sending somebody a, a note, that's something you come across, you know, a photo, um, sometimes old photos, if you come across some of those and you feel like you can part with them to send them to the family, though, like you said, those are, those are treasures and things that people might not even know existed. You know, they might see pictures of their, their loved when they were younger. It's like, Oh my gosh, I never even knew that they went there or they did that or, you know, whatever. And that, and that becomes a very treasured thing to have. Afterward. Yeah. I think uh, one of the, the biggest tragedies of life is the fact that um, I don't know that many people know their worth to others until their funeral and then they're not there to witness what they actually meant to others you know i know i, th I think about that that's so funny because i think about that a lot too yeah mm. we have, we do have those celebrations of life but it's usually after somebody has died yeah <laughs> so, yeah. yeah yeah it's uh i don't know i i think it would be interesting to have one of those before we pass you know <laughs> like yeah, I mean, especially, and I know some people who, um, I have known some people in hospice care who do that, who do have the time, um, you know, just because they have the kind of illness where they have a little bit of time and they're able to plan for it. And they, they do have um, like gatherings like that where they'll maybe have a big family gathering or some kind of like reunion type of thing um, that they are still able, well, you know, still well enough to participate in and they do that beforehand. And mm -hmm. um, they themselves have said well, they were so happy they did that, you know, before they you know, before they actually died and and then and their families said the same thing that like, what a value what a valuable thing it was and, and they say you know more wish more people did this like it was something in our culture that we encouraged you know we do have nice rituals after somebody dies and honor them and say nice things and so on and there's nothing wrong with that but it would be nice if we if we kind of we're not so afraid of death and so afraid to talk about death that we we would encourage those kind of things we knew somebody was getting older, somebody was dying. Hey, let's do something now. You know why they're still here that we can all enjoy and then be able to remember after they're gone. Yeah. While I have you, uh, I, I have been asking for hospice nurses to come on here and just speak about some of the end of life things that they see in patients. And uh, I'm curious if there's any things, any... Uh, just late life visions before a person passed away that they saw in the room or anything like that, that you can recall in your time? Oh, the gosh, there's all kinds of things. Um, depending, um, there's one in particular, I always think about, this is a lady I took about when I took care of when I was working in inpatient several years ago. And, um, she'd had a, a um, near death experience herself years earlier, um, where she had been ill and, um, she, uh, you know, kind of sort of sort of started to cross over so to speak and then you know came back and um she talked about that a lot and she said after that happened she actually was able to um she felt very called to kind of help people pass you know like kind of kind of help people who were dying even though she wasn't um, she didn't do it professionally or anything but um and it was very interesting i remember her I remember asking her since she was so sensitive to that stuff. I said, you know, do you know when somebody in the building, because it was an inpatient, we had like 12 rooms. I said, do you, and she was there for quite a few weeks. Um, she had breast cancer. So she was, um, you know, she was dying. And, and so she was with us for, for a while. And um, I said, do you ever, do you feel it? Like, do you know when someone has died, like in the building? She said, oh yeah. She said, I, you know, I, I do know. She said, this. and then the, the, it was so funny. The very following day, the way they, they were set up, they were like little suites. So you walk in, there's like a common room in the middle with like a little, you know, patio. And then there's a room on either side, like, you know, a single rooms. And so the gentleman across the hall from her had died um, the night before, because I worked nights. And um, I came in to see her the following night. And I said, you know, what, how was your day? And so forth. And she said, it's interesting. So I had a visit. I had a visitor. 
I said, oh, well, I thought your son and your grandchildren weren't coming for a couple more days. She goes, oh, no, no, it wasn't like a real visitor. <laughs> like, okay, what do you mean? And so she told me that at one point she looked over and there was this person standing at the door. And she knew that he wasn't alive. Like she knew he wasn't real. But she wasn't afraid because he smiled at her and so forth. I said, describe him to me. And she did. And um, she had never seen him because she was bed, you know, she was bed bound and she hadn't been out and he was bed bound too. So, that, you know, they had never seen each other. And it was her sweet mate, like the guy across the hall who had died wow. um, just hours earlier. And I said, what time did, it, did you see him? She goes, ah, it was about nine o'clock this morning or thereabouts. And he had died, you know, through the night when I was working. And I said, that was your, that was your friend across the hall. She said, I thought it was probably him, but she was so calm about it, you know, because she, I guess that she'd had those experiences before. It didn't scare her. Um, mm. but people, um, I mean, even in inpatient places like that, like in hospitals where, you know, people die all, all the time and, and inpatient hospice facilities, you know, there's a lot of, and most people, this, you know, if you believe in that, like spirits and so forth, you know, they, they move on pretty much right away, but some don't for whatever reason, some are there temporarily. Um, I've heard many stories from the place, I, the two places I worked inpatient plus other places where there are particular spirits who were there for many years and people say claim they see them mm. you know because some of the people who are dying will have the same experience of seeing you know this little girl in the white dress or this one over here or it's the same story and they've not heard of it beforehand before they came there um and they would you know say to their family members like who is that you know over there or whatever and and you know so i i know a lot of people kind of poo poo that stuff but i you know I've, I've had enough people working in hospice all these years recount those stories to me and i've had enough feelings myself like i've never seen anything but even in the building um you know because i worked nights and go into parts of the building that weren't occupied uh, or whatever um and you just you just feel things so um i think it's you know i think it's a it's a it's a real thing and 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 often people very often people see family members and so forth who have already died and they may yes um i i always think it's like to me it's it's a precious you know when they say something to me like they tell me oh i saw my husband or i i you know i feel like you know um you know he came and told me it's okay or you know whatever and and they you know they really they really see those things and feel those things so yeah i think there's um i don't know I'm trying to think of a good way to put it, whether it's less or more, but I think there's this blur between the afterlife and real life. Mm -hmm. And maybe the blur is not as, I don't know, not as great. As as, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah, maybe it's not as blurry. That that's probably a good way to put it. You know? I, mean, I think if you're open to it, I think that's what it's too. Like that one patient I mentioned, she was open to it because she had these own experiences herself, and so she wasn't scared by it, you know. And she was she kind of welcomed it. And I think if you if we can be more open minded about it, and I, like I said, I think it really starts with talking more about the fact that we're all going to die. You know, yes. we're, I always say we're like cars. You know, you buy a brand new car, you, the minute you drive it off the lot, it's already depreciating. Well, the minute we're born, we're depreciating. And yes. I know that sounds oh that's depressing, but it's the truth. I mean, it's not depressing. I mean, we hopefully have a whole long life ahead of us, but I mean, you know, we're we're dying. I mean, basically, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know. And and I think if we just could talk about it more openly and not have it be this hush hush subject, I think people feel like if I talk about when I'm going to die or I talk about when a family member is going to die, it's going to happen. You mm -hmm. know, well, it's going to happen someday. You know, sure. So like, why can't we talk about it more so there's not all this fear? And I think that's what complicates grief more because we don't talk about it beforehand. So that's why people have all these unresolved things and things that they feel guilty about and so forth because we just don't have this openness about it. Uh, some other cultures do. Uh, we don't. You know, here in a quote unquote Western, you know, <laughs> Western culture, if you want to call it that, we just don't. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting to look at rituals and things like that and, uh, you know, even different eras in life. And, and I always love looking at the Victorian era. And, uh, wow, they, they were uh, very unique, we'll say, in in, in their uh, celebrations or in their, um, you know, look at death. I mean, it's, you know, they here they were, they would, you know, take pictures of their dead loved one as if they were still living. Cause it, it may be, I know pictures and things were very expensive back then to take. And it's yeah. like, uh, they would take that opportunity. It's like, all right, everybody in the family, you know, dress up, you know, this is the last time we're going to see this person. And, uh, mm -hmm. Very unique. And of course, we would say, you know, in this day and time, that's creepy or, the, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. very morbid. 
Um, yep. But it was it was a way of life for them, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I don't and, know. It's, and it's a, interesting. There's there's a movement um, that's been around for a while. I don't know if you, you've probably heard of it. It's called, uh, there's an organization called the Order of the Good Death, and um, there's a, what we call a death positive movement where we people you know will have festivals and different things to you know that celebrate these traditions that people had and from different cultures and different things and um, uh, and to basically they will encourage that that talking about it more like you said mm-hmm. and, and doing things beforehand um rather than sitting around after someone has died and having all these regrets and say oh i wish we had done this we should have said this or we should have done that it's like well why didn't you you know we, we mm-hmm. can we can it's just that we're we're afraid to talk about it because we're it's afraid it's gonna upset somebody or you know whatever just like like i said even talking about somebody after they're gone you know you're afraid i can't mention my dad because it's gonna upset my mother i'm just like no you probably she probably wants to talk about him you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to hear what your story is about him because they're going to be different than her stories about him. And and so, yeah, she, say his name and to talk about him. And, and people are people who are grieving are going to tell you they're not, you know, what I mean, like they're going to say, I, I don't, I just not up to that today or I don't want to talk about that today. And you know, but most of the time they're going to want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's uh, healing in, in just speaking about things in life. And uh, mm-hmm. so definitely talking. So let me let me ask you uh, just I guess to explain to listeners a little bit about being an end of life doula. What what is that and and why would someone want one? Let me ask you that. Well, okay, um, and a doula is is basically um, you know it's obviously in the birth situation referred to as a midwife. It's somebody who's in a supportive assisting role, who's a guide, and um, who's there to uh, provide you know, like support to the person who's going through the experience, whether they're having a baby or whether they're dying, you know, and then the people around them as well. Um, and so part of the reason why you would want to have one um, is is basically because um, hospice cannot, hospice is wonderful, but we can't provide the things that we used to be able to provide because of insurance and Medicare restrictions and, and, you know, different, different things. And, and whether it's a for-profit or not-for-profit doesn't really matter. I mean, these, you know, these organizations have to be able to stay in business so they can continue to provide these services for people. So unfortunately there's a lot of things that, you know, we as hospice professionals, we really struggle with because we can't do, or we can't spend as much time with people or we can't be there. So that's part of the reason why you would want to have an end of life doula and also for the education, because um, even with hospice, you know, we come in and we, we educate people about what to expect and what's going to be happening and so forth. But if it unfolds very quickly because somebody's, you know, dying kind of quickly and you don't have all that much time, it can be very overwhelming. So if you have an end of life doula who's working with you, um, you know, from from the get go, sort of like when somebody first becomes ill and this maybe perhaps working with that person as well to kind of help them process what's going on um, and prepare for their death. Death. Um, it, it can be practical things we can provide, but uh, lots of times, again, it's just the support and the education and being some sometimes that middle person being, you know, being there to ask the right questions to the hospice professionals when they come in, because most people don't know what to ask or, you know, or, or, or what to think about something. Um, and to have that support person who's, you know, in your corner and you know that they're there and you can ask them questions. And some people, um, some doulas actually you know, we'll sit in vigil, you know, like that's part of their practice um, where they'll offer that as well. If if, if it's an in-person thing, sometimes some of us work virtually so that you can kind of help people all over the country and different parts of the world and so forth. But if you're doing it locally as well, you, sometimes you can be there um, even just for a few hours, you know, to kind of give the family respite and stuff. Because again, that's something that hospice doesn't provide. People uh, are under the impression lots of times that, oh, well, hospice is going to come in and then we're going to have all this help. Yes, you're going to have a lot more help than you had before, but we're not there 24-7. And we're not even there lots of times when somebody's actually dying. We try to do visits, like when we know somebody's what we call actively dying, we try to do daily visits at that point. But even those are, you know, the nurse comes in and maybe there for an hour, 45 minutes or an hour, and that's it. You know, they're not there with you, you know, day in and day out around the clock. Um, and And that's, you know, and people, but I, I need more help or I don't understand or, you know, I need somebody here and, like we don't have the people to send because that's just not the way that things are set up anymore. We just, you know, we're not able to do that. So, so having, I think when you're going through that process, again, whether you're the person who's dying and or the family members or both um, having an end of life duel or death duel, whatever you want to call them um, can be an incredibly valuable, valuable thing for, for support, education, um, just, you know, 
resources, all those kinds of things. Because we we do that. I mean, when, when we go through our training and so forth, we learn how to kind of put our little toolkit together of resources and resource lists and different things that we're able to offer people. And again, depending on your background, some people are storytellers, some people do um, like uh, like Reiki and things like that, you know, like the hands-on type of stuff. I mean, people who go into this work have all different kinds of skills and background that they can bring to the table. So. Yeah. Yeah. And you said you do that virtually as well then? Mm-hmm. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Cause I'm, my, my part of it um, is, is more um, what I like to do uh, in my dual practice is education. And um, also, like I said, helping people like set up their end of life, um, you know, like their, their advanced directives and things like that. So that kind of work I can, I can do virtually. Um, certainly you can do it in person, but that you can do that, that virtually. So. Yeah. I wonder how many people have uh, wills and living wills made, like what percentage of people in, like you said, in the Western world. Um, I, I didn't until um, probably about 10 years ago. So I would say around age 38 uh, is when I decided to do that. And and it was it was probably one of the most sobering things that uh, I did in life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, if I'm not able to speak, move, whatever, this is what I want done. And, uh, you know, and when I do pass, this is what, I want for, you know, my finances, my belongings, you know, it was just, Mm -hmm. it was a really sobering thing, but I think it's so, so necessary for us to do that. And, uh, Lindy, you, you get the pleasure of actually seeing me and and things that I can hold up here, whereas nobody else can, but here's one of my favorite (laughs) books. Um, it's called I'm dead. I'm dead now. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, it's just really a, a blank journal that that people can write some of their wishes in. Yeah. Obviously, the legality part of it, you know, it, uh, when it comes to belongings and things like that, uh, is not going to hold up like a will. But it does say, you know, um, here's here's what I want to do with the family dog. Here's what I want, you know, the people mm-hmm. I want you to contact when I pass. Here's, mm-hmm. uh, you know all of my banking information, like everything you need to know. And I think it's probably one of the best gifts that we can give our children. One of the best things that we can do for those that are left behind, because as we all know, um, it's, it's a wreck when somebody passes away trying to figure out what do we do that, you know, and I was so blessed because like I said, my, my mother, particularly she, had all that stuff like even years before it was kind of popular to do that or people did that even before we knew what a living will was um she had her regular will you know after my dad died we updated that you know she did they had the regular will but she also you know she had talked about those things you know like what she wanted or didn't want as far as you know feeding tubes or this or that or i don't want that you know and we had those discussions so when she did get sick you know my brother automatically kind of was like, okay, you're going to be the healthcare power of attorney. Cause you know, you know, all that stuff that she wants, you know, I, I can take care of her finances and I'm an accountant, you know, but I, you, you're going to make all those decisions and I'll, I will honor your decisions. But she did, which was wonderful. You know, I'll, I'll respect what you tell me because I know that you had these long talks with her about it and you, and you know, um, but people don't do that. When I first started the hospice work, it was astounding to me. People who had been either had a chronic illness or were diagnosed with something terminal and had been sick for a few years and they had absolutely nothing mm. either because they didn't want to think about it or talk about it or they didn't, they were afraid it was going to upset their family or whatever. And the thing is like in hospice, you know, we, we try to encourage people when we have like, like a work, we have workbooks and things like that, that we give people to, to get those things together. Uh, Cause a lot of people do have a financial will, you know, like a, a, for their, their property and things like that. Um, Cause people know that that's necessary to do that. So a lot of people, a lot more people have those than have the advanced directives. Um, but sometimes we don't have time. You know, sometimes people, it happens, it happens really quickly. And if you don't have these things in place beforehand, sometimes people don't have time to get them done before they die. So it's one of those things that it's, it's definitely an, an, an education thing, but it's, it's so, it's so important. And I think once you do it, like you said, it's sobering, but it's also peaceful. You know what I mean? You have some peace about like, Hey, I, I've chosen these people. I'm pre- I'm pretty sure they're going to honor what I've asked them to do, and whether it has to do with, like you said, who gets my dog or who gets my, you know, whatever, or what I want to have done at my funeral, or um, you know, or, or even medical things. Like if I if I can't speak for myself, I'm not going to have a certain quality of life. This is what I uh, this is the decisions I want you to make for me. If I can't make them myself, I, I mean, for me, I mean, I have that. Like I've had one of those for a long time. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I wrote a will when I was like 12. 
Um, wow. you know, not, yeah. And I wrote it all out. Like, and of course my little things I have when I was 12, you know, like my dog and my, then my, this, you know, my jewelry and, uh, and I gave it, I uh, had my parents witness it. And at first my parents were kind of like, you know, but then my mother was like, well, we talked about this stuff all the time. So I should be surprised that this is on her mind and she's decided she wants to do this. And mm. I have a song picked out for my funeral. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but I mean, that I've always kind of been in that mindset for, for most of my life. So it was actually, I guess it's no surprise I do end of life work, but um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I just, it, it's, but I think even like that with your kids, like, like with pets, like we talk about in the pet duel course about um, having it be a family thing. Like if you do have a family and you have children, whether they're younger children, teenagers or whatever, and the family pet um, you know, is, is ill and the, and the, and maybe they die. And depending on what you decide to do, whether you have them cremated or you, you're able to, you know, take care of the remains in your backyard or whatever, it's kind of nice um, to have a ritual around, especially if your kids are young, because it might be their first experience with losing someone they really love and, you know, a living being who they really care about and is close to them. And so honoring that with even a little ritual, if you have like a little you know, informal funeral or some kind of thing that you do or, you know, at, buy a marker to put in the yard or to and, and encourage them to talk about it. So then, you know, when they do actually maybe lose a family member or somebody close to them, um, you know, it's not their first experience with it. And it still might be really difficult and painful and, and so forth. But at the same time, it's not like they're not, you know, and, and we tend to, unfortunately, we tend to dismiss children in that whole thing where we don't talk to them about it. We're not honest. We don't want them. We don't let them see us cry. And so because we're, you know, protecting them and you're not really protecting them that way, you're actually really kind of cheating them because they're going to have to deal with it eventually in their life. At some point, they're going to have to deal with, you know, somebody they care about dying. And so if we don't talk about it and do those kinds of things, then they're going to be at a disadvantage. I've seen that many times. Like I said, I felt I was really lucky because I grew up with open open discussion about it but i've i've had friends who just you know we had somebody young in our community die or we have had a close friend or even one of their family members or grandmother or their parent or whatever and they're just they don't even know what to do what to think what to i mean because they're just they've never they've had no experience with it and they had no discussion about it they don't they don't, they don't know yeah you know you talked about uh i guess trying to prevent kids from feeling emotions so to speak and uh you know, I, I recall going to my grandmother's funeral. I think I was 11 when she passed away. And um, I remember it was either my mom or my aunt stating, now we're going to, it was like for the viewing, you know, or, or I guess previewing, we'll say for, for just the family. And uh, I, I remember one of them telling me, now we're going to try not to cry when when we see her or whatever and it was they were setting the expectation that crying's not good here like we don't want good, to right. get all emotional and i remember going right up to her casket and i mean it was waterworks for me i'm just like oh wow that this good. this hurts because it was my first <laughs> i'd been to other funerals yeah. for like a great grandfather and and things but um it was my first i guess memorable experience at a funeral and uh, I don't think it's right for us to choose the emotions of other people, whether it's a child or, you mm -hmm. know, an, an adult, you know, and, and that's one of the things that we always tell people is, you know, don't cry, don't cry. And it's like, why, why would we tell people that? You know, I mean, I think part of it is because we don't want to see other people sad. I mean, that's something that people who are grieving always, you know, kind of complain about and say that, you know, they, people want me to, kind of get over it and be happy again. And and I will be at some point, you know what I mean? Like I, I am working through this and I will, I, I, I do, you know, still enjoy my life and I do still smile and, and have fun sometimes, but I'm also dealing with this, these other emotions and we have to allow, like you said, allow people to have them, whether they're children or adults, it doesn't make a difference. Um, you know, it, it's very, it's very, and I think it's important to let kids know what they're going to see. Like I, I had actually asked my mother when I was like five or six, I think she was always running off to somebody's wake, you know, somebody at church or one, you know, somebody in the neighborhood or whatever. And so I asked her about it one time. I said, well, what, what, you know, what, what happens or what, can I, can I go with you? And she said, well, 
yeah, you can come with me, but let me talk to you about this first. And so she told mm. me, you know, this is what you're going to see. And some people will be crying. Some people won't. You might even hear people laughing because they're, they're talking about the person and having a, a fun memory. And they may be over in the corner and, you know, laughing. And that's, that's okay. That's appropriate. It's not, they're not doing anything wrong. And told me about what I was going to see with the with the body laid out in the casket and everything. Um, and I said, well, can I touch it? She says, yeah, but it's going to be, you know, cold and it's not going to, you know, they're not, they're not alive anymore. They're not moving, you know, that kind of, I mean, she really told me everything to expect and so i walked in there and i wasn't I mean, even though it was all new to me i wasn't scared and i think that's mm. important too like if you're if it's something like that happens before you go to the wake i think it's important to sit your kids down and say okay you know this is this is you've never been to this before or maybe you have but you were sort of in the background so this is what you're going to see and and this is what you can do you're like you're allowed to cry you're allowed to touch them you're allowed to um, even chat with people and laugh and, and those kind of things. Like just let them know what, what it's going to be about. And that, and like you said, honor their emotions and whatever you're feeling is okay. You know, it's okay. Mm. If you, if you don't feel appropriate, like you don't feel comfortable showing your feelings and other people around you are crying, but you don't feel like you want to cry, then you don't have to, you can cry later, you know, like whatever, whatever, it, whatever you comes up for you is okay. And I think that that was one of the gifts my, my mother gave me um, was to say that, you know, to teach me those things and say it was okay. And that that's a part of life and we don't like it and we're sad about it, but you know, it's okay. Yeah. Well, Lindy, tell me, uh, or, or I guess tell our audience here about some of the services that you provide and, and ways that they can contact you. And I will put all of your information at the end of, or in the uh, shows uh, show notes and uh, but just tell everybody about how you may be able to help them in their journey. Uh, well, I like I said, I'm a, I'm a grief coach. Um, and so I um, I like to say I'm a loss and transition coach because I say that, you know, we experience grief from all kinds of losses, not just death. So I help people who are, you know, dealing with losses from the things, health things, retirement, you know, different life transitions. Uh, but I do both one-to-one um, coaching as well as group coaching. Um, and then I also... Um, uh, you know, the organization that I did my training for, the, it's called International Dual Life Movement. And um, I um, teach for them. And so I encourage people, if you are interested in looking into end-of-life doula work, please um, please contact, either contact me directly and, and my email is probably the best way to reach me or my website. Um, and I can, you know, get you in touch with them or give you some information about it if that's something you're interested in. If you've kind of been intrigued hearing about this end-of-life doula thing, I want to know more about it. I'm certainly happy to to talk about that. Um, and um, yeah, and I also do, um, uh, I'm a speaker, so I speak about grief and grief recovery. And um, I'm actually working on a book too. So um, so yeah, there's a few different ways I I, I try to um, try to support people. Also, if you're on if you're on social media, um, I do have a group on Facebook. It's called Growing Through Grief. Um, it's a very large group, and I I try to keep it. Um, Again, kind of focus on recovery. I try to keep it a safe space um, for people to be able to you know, support each other and talk about whatever they need to talk about. And um, and so, if you know, you can you can find me there too if you want to join the group because uh, I do offer some special things. I do offer like free trainings to group members that I might charge other people for and and things like that. So so it's um yeah. Excellent, excellent. Well, I'll give you kind of the floor to wrap us up here too. Anything that you think we have missed or anything that you want to throw out there here in the end? I guess just, just to encourage people that there, there really are more resources out there than I think, you know, there are, um, mm -hmm. there's books, there's podcasts, there like this, you know, like there's other, I mean, there's, um, uh, support, um, through coaching, counseling, um, you know, even like I said, even online, if you're one of these people who sort of like, uh, I have a few people in my group who call themselves lurkers are like, well, I don't really participate too much. I just kind of hang out in the background. I'm like, that's okay. If you're benefiting from what's going on in this group or from the support and everything that I, you don't, you know, I don't, it's okay if you don't interact or you don't post things or, you know, whatever, whatever you need. I mean, the, the things are, are out there. Um, so I encourage people, you know, you don't, you don't have to do this alone. And also the other thing too, is that don't feel uncomfortable if you feel like you, you can't talk as openly as, uh, or honestly with, um, people, you know, sometimes you have, you know, close friends or whatever, who are kind of always your go-tos. And then when you're going through something like, you know, grief, uh, when you've lost something or somebody very important, um, sometimes those are not always the people who are going to help you the most. I mean, many, many times they are, you know, your, 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 your church family and your, your neighbors and your friends and your family. 
um, but sometimes not. And lots of times it's because you know may, they may be grieving too and struggling. So, um, you know, it's okay to seek out support, um, like like I said, like in support groups and different things like that with people who maybe had similar experiences, particularly around things like we were talking about earlier with suicide and so forth. Because, you know, someone who hasn't experienced that isn't, isn't going to understand. They care about you and they want to help you, but they might not know how to help you. So um, I encourage people to, you know, to the helps out there. Don't don't try to do it yourself by yourself because you don't have to. Yeah. Well, Lindy, thank you so much for being here. I, I really appreciate your your knowledge and and the work that you do in the grief community, and uh, just just really thank you for all your your words today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really um, enjoy enjoy talking with you. Enjoy being here, and I hope that what we discussed is um you know helpful for some people. And and uh, yeah, if you haven't. Uh, feel feel free to reach out to me, contact me. Um, if you need any support or help, I'm I'm always happy to uh, to do whatever I can. Excellent. Well, listeners, thank you very much for being here on this episode of the Grief Observed podcast. And uh, I hope that you are well, and we will catch you next episode. Have a great day. <laughs>